Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 12 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome Adam Frank, a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Rochester in New York, the author of Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth, published in 2018 by W.W. Norton. Frank is also a New York Times contributor, the co-founder of National Public Radio's 13.7 Cosmos and Culture blog, and an on-air commentator for NPR's All Things Considered. But most recently, Frank has received the first ever NASA grant to look for alien technosignatures in a non-radio spectrum. That means that Frank and colleagues will be looking to characterize the signatures of alien technology in our galaxy. And that's the topic of our conversation today. Frank joins us from Rochester in upstate New York. Adam, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Oh, it's great to be here. What is uh, your own definition of a technosignature? Uh, a technosignature is, well, maybe let's step back for a second and, and talk about biosignatures, right? Um, so uh, one of the amazing developments in the study of life in the universe is that we are now uh, quite mature in our thinking about how to go look for uh, biosignatures, which are signatures um, in, imprinted in the light from a distant planet of a biosphere. So things like if we saw oxygen and methane at the same time uh, f uh, in a, from a planet, looking at the, the light that was passing through the atmosphere of the planet, we would call that a biosignature. Um, and so uh, now there's been an enormous amount of work and a huge number of papers of people thinking about how to, what are biosignatures, how to find them, what, you know, what optical ranges we should be looking at or infrared. Um, so a lot of work on that. And a technosignature is just an extension of that, saying, well, you know, okay, you, you could have a biosphere uh, with plants. You could also have a technological civilization. And so uh, a technological, you know, any kind of imprint in the light of that technological civilization is what we would call a technosignature. So, uh, so, you know, if we understand what biosignatures are, then a technosignature is really just an extension of that. And you're saying like, okay, not only is there, you know, life on the planet that would produce, you know, uh, certain kinds of gases, uh, but there would also be the fruits of a, or the imprint of a technological civilization that can take many forms as I think we're about to, to talk about. But it's basically the imprint in the light from a star or from a planet of a, the uh, technological activity of a intelligent technolo technology building civilization. And what uh, wavelength ranges would you be uh, looking at in doing these techno surveys? Well, uh, the techno signatures, you know, in general, you could any wavelength you'd be interested in. In the the this grant that we recently got was specifically for non radio. So uh, specifically, what we're and, and the important thing is that we're not we are not actually looking. Our job with this grant is to begin because we're just starting this whole process to characterize what kinds of non radio. Uh, techno signatures might there be out there. This grant is the the first techno signature, strictly non-radio techno signature grant that NASA has funded in, in, in ever, I think. Um, 
And the, the grant runs for three years, but the, the hope is that this is the beginning of a very uh, building a robust program in techno signatures. Because as we said, uh, you know, NASA's already put a lot of money into um, biosignatures, and there's a very large, very active community in biosignatures. But when you think about the search for life, right? I mean, the, the understanding whether or not there is life on other planets in the universe is one of the fundamental questions that science has. And when we're looking for life, what we really, really, really want to find is our kind of life. We want to find intelligent life. We want to know whether we're the only time in uh, cosmic history that a species has come to know itself. So, listen, finding life, finding any kind of biosignature would be huge. But what we really want, if we had our druthers, would be to find out whether there's anyone like us. So, you know, it, technosignatures are, are, it's a very new field. This, I mean, we've had SETI for a while, but this idea of, of technosignatures and looking at planets, uh, that is particularly new. And it's very exciting because, you know, we don't know. It could be that technosignatures are much easier to detect than biosignatures. And maybe, bio, that, maybe that there's... And biosignatures, as you know, uh, are not easy to detect. I mean, there are a thousand reasons why any given agglomeration of, spe of chemical species in an atmosphere of an extrasolar planet could not represent life as we know it or, or bacterial life. And thus, uh, so it's just a logical follow-on is, is the search for technosignatures as difficult as uh, ruling out abiotic life in a biosignature? Well, that's an interesting question because on one hand, it may be that technosignatures are going to be much more apparent, right? There may be a way in which a technosignature just screams at you that this is, you know, this is so bizarre that there's no way that it could be produced by... Um, uh, you know, by abiotic, uh, uh, or it just may be a thousand times brighter, a thousand times, you know, the signal to noise ratio could be much, much higher for technical signatures. We just don't know. But I, you know, I think we are going to have to think long and hard, just like the biosignatures community is going to think long and hard uh, about this. Because, yeah, I think uh, there's a thousand ways that we could be fooled. There's always a thousand ways we could be fooled. Uh, nature is very clever. So uh, I think we should anticipate that there's going to have to be a lot of deep thinking about this. And, of course, the problem with technosignatures that you, you have somewhat with biosignatures, but it's much worse with technosignatures, is now you've got to anticipate what do other civilizations do, right? And that you want to avoid having to write science fiction stories, right? Somehow you want to find aspects of technology or building a technological civilization that in some sense are, are unavoidable, you know, like energy use or, or entropy generation. Right. And so entropy generation, just for the listener, can you kind of give us a, a parenthetical definition? Yeah. So entropy generation is waste. You know, it's the unavoidable fact that when you use energy to do work, like building a civilization, you are always, some of that energy just turns into crap <laughs> in one way. And, you know, <laughs> okay. crap can be defined in many different ways. Uh, it could be just heat. You know, you, you, you take a bunch of gasoline and you want to do something with it. And in the end, you, know, you, you may be able to power your car and drive it around, but your the engine block heats up and you can't use that heat to do any more work. Um, uh, and some level, you could see the CO2 that we generate from fossil fuel burning as a measure of entropy. Uh, so there's always the unavoidable generation of waste or chaos or disorder that comes out of using energy to build order. And so just, uh, just to make sure that the listener understands, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence in the radio 
and the optical, to be fair, in the last 20 years in the radio since uh, Frank Drake started his project Ozma. If, I, if memory serves me, I think it was around 1960. Right. Uh, so yeah. they, these uh, uh, astronomers were looking for intelligent signals in the radio or optical. Uh, uh, efforts, perhaps, to communicate ex- with uh, interstellar, uh, other interstellar species or uh, could be leakage uh, from the radio spectrum, just as we have leakage uh, from TV uh, signals here uh, from Earth. So, but this is not what you're talking about with techno signatures, is it? It's uh, totally well, different know, in kettle some of sense, fish. There's, there's the techno signature field is is definitely part of SETI, but classic SETI, you know, classic SETI was limited in some sense by not knowing where to look. Uh, you know, so the when in the beginning, um, it was actually 1959. I think it was the fall of 1959, summer and fall of 1959. That project Ozma. Uh, was 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 tried out. Um, so what they were always looking for, or mostly looking for, was some kind of beacon. The idea was that somebody put up a beacon to communicate, to announce that 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 you know we're here. Uh, and uh, leakage, actually, yeah. And then by the mid seventies, my actually uh, one of the people I worked with, Woody Sullivan, was the one who proposed the idea of leakage, and he showed that actually at the time. Uh, military radars as the planet rotated, if you were looking with a radio telescope, you'd be able to detect them. Uh, but the, the emphasis really was on, on, and a lot of work went into thinking about uh, communications. It was all about communications beacons. Um, and again, this was because we didn't really know, we didn't know where any planets were, and we didn't know, so we didn't know where to look. But now, for me, the uh, most important transformation that has happened in the field of thinking about in, uh, intelligent life technology uh, building life is that we na- is the exoplanet revolution. So in 1995, we found our first planet orbiting another star. And this was a revolution of the highest order because you can look back to the Greeks and see the Greeks arguing about this, whether or not there were any other planets orbiting other stars. Aristotle said, no, Earth was unique. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, uh, we, the sun was the only place that had a solar system. Uh, or the you know the, the planets out that were in the, for Aristotle orbiting the Earth were the only ones in the universe. Whereas the atomists at the time, Democritus and so, were arguing like, no, no, the universe is full of other planets, just like uh, Earth and uh, the planets that are, uh, the other planets in the solar system. Right. So two thousand years, we're trying to answer that question. In nineteen ninety five, we answer it definitively. Well, and actually, time, I mean, we, uh, not to be pedantic, but uh, ninety five was the first time that for detection of a extrasolar planet orbiting a sun-like star. The pulsar planets preceded it. Uh, well, except night. we didn't know that at the time. Now, going back, we can say, like, yes, those were found. But when the first pulsar planets were found, at, you know, at one point they got, the, the discovery was pulled back. So, uh, you know, in 1995, there was still a lot of controversy about pulsar planets. So, you know, now in retrospect, at least that's my understanding, in retrospect, we recognize that, yes, that data, or some of that data was good. So that was, in fact... Um, uh, those were detections. But in 1995, the, you know, that was considered to be the first planet that had been found because of the controversy around the pulsar planets. Okay. And pulsar planets, the problem with pulsar planets is that, you know, it's not even clear that they were planets from the beginning. Like, where did these form afterwards? Or, you know, just they, they were so alien. Now, maybe, who knows now that, you know, we, we've come to learn more. But they didn't seem like places where there was going to be life. Uh, so um, the detection in 95 
was the beginning of the exoplanet revolution. And since then, of course, you know, as everyone knows, we now know that every planet in, or sorry, every star in the sky pretty much has planets orbiting it. And we've been able to identify planets that are in the right place, the habitable zone, for life to form. So that is really the transition, right? With SETI, you didn't know where you were looking. You pointed it at stars that were kind of sun-like and hoped for the best. Now we know exactly where to look. We know exactly which planets we want to be looking at, and we can stare at them for a while, and we have the possibility to do what is called atmospheric characterization, where we can actually see if the planet is transiting its star. We get a little while where the starlight passes through the atmosphere and embeds the spectral signature of the atmosphere, of the planet's atmosphere, in the light. So we can actually tell what's happening, you know, on the planet. So that is what is so different. That is what, that, it's, a, it's just an absolute sea change from the classic idea of, you know, Jodie Foster, anybody who's seen um, uh, <laughs> Contact, right? Jodie Foster sitting there with her, with the earphones on, waiting for a message from space. Yeah, that's, a, that's a bit much, but uh, yeah, I get you. You will actually start looking... Uh, analyzing data, and you say you're no, not- no. We're not analyzing data. We're our, our this first project is all theory. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take the first steps in, in some sense, building a library of techno signatures that observers, when they start taking data, can sort of look to our library and be like, oh, oh, okay, we're looking in this wavelength range. Here's what we should be looking for. Okay, so you will initially focus on. Atmospheric technosignatures indicating the presence of technological activities on exoplanets, solar panels, and pollutants. Uh, technosignatures might include industrial pollution of atmosphere, city lights, photovoltaic cells, solar panels, megastructures, or swarms of satellites. Uh, so uh, would you be able to characterize the presence of solar panels or even chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs? Well, that's what the project, that's, that's the initial goals of the project, the very limited goals of this first project, are to explore two particular kinds of uh, technosignatures. The first is atmospheric pollutants in the explicit form of chlorofluorocarbons. And so for your listeners, chlorofluorocarbons are the stuff, the CFCs, that was actually banned um, in the uh, on Earth because it was producing the... Um, ozone hole. It destroys the, the ozone when it gets released. So uh, chlorofluorocarbons are just a, they're, they're a kind of chemical. Why, why go there? Well, they're a kind of chemical that we know we did produce. They're a kind of chemical, chemical that has, it's highly unlikely, or it's hard to imagine how nature would produce uh, chlorofluorocarbons. Um, and they're going to have a spectral signature. So uh, a good spectral signature. So it's already, there was already like a first step at this um, uh, that looked at CFCs and found like, yeah, actually, you know, it should be detectable. So what we have to do now is do a much more in-depth study, understanding how actually having enough CFCs in an atmosphere to detect them would actually change the atmosphere. We got to take in the climate effects of it. Uh, so do a much more in-depth study of that. Um, so that's one. One is the chlorofluorocarbons. And let's just stop for a moment. And you, somebody could say like, well, why, you know, why do you think an alien civilization would produce, you know, freon gas? That's what chlorofluorocarbons are. And the answer is, well, we're not saying that they would, but we got to start somewhere, right? We got to start this process somewhere. So, of course, we're going to start thinking about what we have done and let's, you know, begin to sort of uh, cut our teeth on in this by looking at 
the kinds of, of industrial chemicals we have produced. As we go on, as we get better at this, we'll start asking ourselves, well, in general, what kinds of things come out of industry? What kinds of things come out of metallurgy? What kinds of, you know, if you're going to harness your planet's resources and do things with them, what kinds of things are you going to produce? Like, what kinds of things can you not help but produce? Uh, so that's sort of the strategy for that project. All right, so the next thing we're going to look at is, you know, we all know that we need to, we can't keep burning fossil fuels or else, you know, uh, the civilization is going to be severely channel challenged on this planet. So, you know, we know that the uh, one of the best ways of having uh, renewable energy is solar panels. So you can ask, well, what happens if you cover a significant fraction of your planet in solar panels? Well, this is really cool. What you do is you change the reflectance properties of your planet as a whole, right? There's a lot of sunlight bouncing off the panels. So the albedo, so, uh, you actually change what is known as the albedo of the planet. No, no, it's not the albedo. It's going to be the spectral reflectance. You're going spectral to change reflectance, the, okay. You're going to change, if you look at how, as a function of wavelength, where the reflected light, where, where the reflectance changes, um, that's what it is. And this happens on Earth. There's something called the red edge. So vegetation, actually, because of how, chlor how light bounces off of leaves and chlorophyll, you can actually see the reflectance as you get to the red jump up. Um, and and the, red, you know, the, the red light. So as you go from blue light to red light, you see the reflectance uh, jump up uh, at the red part of the spectrum. And you can see this from space. So the red edge is, is one example of a great biosignature. There's been lots of papers written about using this red edge and the reflectance properties to, um, to judge uh, or as a biosignature. So okay. what Avi Loeb and collaborators did is looked at all of the different kinds of, of minerals that could be used as, uh, to build solar panels. And he found all of them have ultraviolet reflectance edges. Uh, the spectra, the reflectance jumps up uh, in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. So uh, that also, so we're going to investigate that in more detail and see how if you have an atmosphere, uh, how that might change and how much of your planet do you need to cover in uh, uh, photovoltaic cells. And of course, maybe you don't cover your planet. Maybe what you do is you cover a moon in photovoltaic cells and then you try and beam the energy back like via microwaves or something. But it just so happens that the next star over Proxima Centauri a little over four light years distant, mm -hmm. is uh, has a habitable planet, a so-called habitable planet. It's uh, uh, tidally or gravitationally locked to its star so that one side is permanently in day and the other side is permanently in night. As last week's Cosmic Controversy guest Edward Guinan mentioned, there might be ways for the planet to have natural winds between the two day and night sides of the planet but as one of uh, your own collaborators noted in a press release, if a civilization wants, wants to illuminate or warm, warm up the night side, they would place photovoltaic cells on the day side and transfer the electric power gain to the night side. Is that plausible? And if so, how would you look for that? And it's pretty amazing that is a, just the next star over. Yeah, no, it's pretty, it is, it is pretty amazing. You know, so, so, um, that is an example of a uh, of a planet orbiting a um, an M dwarf, right? A, a, a small uh, red dwarf, a small yeah, yeah, a small star. And so you know that so small stars, stars less lower mass than the sun, are actually the most common type of star in the universe. Uh, so that is where we're going to start our search, or our our techno signature search, or all of our you know, our searches for life, because those are the most common. 
uh, stars, and that means also they're the closest stars. So the idea of habitable zone star, uh, planets in the uh, uh, orbiting M dwarfs or red dwarfs is really interesting because those planets are going to be really, really different from from what we normally think of about habitable zone worlds. You know, we think we imagine a habitable zone like world like Earth or maybe Mars. You know, um, but these worlds, right? Because the title, because they're tidally locked. Uh, they're going to be really interesting uh, planets. And at first people were like, well, forget it. You know, the night side is going to be permanently cold and it's going to be so cold that the atmosphere would collapse. Like you wouldn't even have an atmosphere on that side. It would just, you know, all freeze out. But now we know that you get these powerful winds, these, these uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the spot that's directly under the sun that's in constant sunlight uh, heats up. You get uh, air expanding and then uh, the uh, dry winds are driven um, around the entire planet. So the, the day side or the night sides could be quite warm as a matter of fact. So, right. So the question is, can you get life there and can you get, uh, uh an intelligent civilization? So Louvoir, a proposed NASA space telescope that could launch around 2040 could potentially look for city lights on an exoplanet. Well, Louvoir, I mean, I think that's, I'm not sure if Louvoir could, because I don't think it's going to have the aperture size, but the thing that I've seen, at least the discussion I've seen has been more the, uh, the class of hundred meter telescopes, right? That, well, actually, you know, actually, that maybe are going to be I hate, over fifty years. I hate away. to disagree, but at the Absicon conference, uh, just uh, I think it's a 2018 or 2019 in in the Seattle area, I actually quote somebody um, in a Forbes article that told me uh, that was a presenter that did advocate Louvoir for looking for city lights. Okay, all right. Well, listen, I'm, I'll be happy to be wrong about that. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So conventional wisdom has it that uh, the search for techno-signatures would involve the search for Dyson spheres or artificial constructs uh, first proposed by physicist Freeman Freeman Dyson as enabling an advanced civilization to harness most, if not all, of the energy from their host star. So when Dyson suggested, came up with this idea, he imagined building a sphere around a star that would collect 100% of the starlight. But you don't have to go that far. You could have a, you know, a swarm of large-scale structures that are absorbing the light from the star or doing something else. They don't even have to be about, a, don't even have to be about energy collection. The more we look at planets, uh, the more we look in depth the greater the possibilities we're going to see weird things that are either we're going to have to interpret in terms of uh, um, biosignatures or possibly technosignatures. And there was a, um, I believe Jason Wright at uh, Penn State uh, did a... Uh, My collaborator, he's one of the people on the grant. That's right, yeah. And I think I think uh, several years ago he did a search for, uh, in the infrared, uh, just for ne- of nearby galaxies for any sort of sign of uh, structural artificial megastructures of any sort and he found right. he came up with nothing he came up uh, with crickets so yeah uh, well that was it was a first it was a first attempt at this and so things will again all of these are first attempts that uh you know this is going to be what people have to understand when we talk about techno signatures is like everything else you should expect this to take a long time because it's science now maybe we're going to trip over something you know tomorrow but, you know, it's going to take a long time refining instruments, figuring out what to look at. Look at how long it took to find gravity waves. It was basically 100 years from the time um, people predicted gravity waves to the time we were able to detect them. Look how long it took uh, with atoms. The Greeks suggested that there were atoms in, you know, 2500 B.C. or 500 B.C. And we discovered atoms in 1900. So, you know, science is like I like to tell people science is boring. 
<laughs> and what I mean by that is it's a lot of work, a lot of tedious work. If you want to, the more radical your suggestion is, the more hard work, long, hard work you're going to have to put into it. What about uh, how likely is it? I mean, this is a, a a supposition, but because we don't know the modus operandi behind any culture, uh, uh, any alien civilization's culture, but uh, how likely is it? Do you think that a civilization on a planet around a sun-like star would need or even want to harness all or part of that star's energy? What would they use that energy for? Well, that's a really good question, and I think. You know, th- this gets into this, how do we think, how are we to think about uh, other cultures, like cultures that are so different from ours that we can't even imagine their thinking? When one does this, I think one of the, one of the nicest things that Jason Rice came up with was one has to avoid the monoculture fallacy, which is that, like, everybody will build Dyson spheres or nobody will build Dyson spheres, right? Whatever you imagine about civilizations, there's, if there's, you know, a, a reasonable number of civilizations, why would they all only do one thing? So, you know, the thing that certainly you can say about life on Earth, if we want to try and generalize life on Earth, is that life on Earth always has to harvest energy. And the more energy you can harvest, the greater your, uh, your ability to make more of your species. So certainly you would think that, energy harvesting is something you know is a is a fundamental part of uh being alive and also civilizations because when we look at our own uh, history uh we've always it's always the history has always been about finding new ways to harvest energy and harvest more energy so by analogy we can say like at least some species will probably follow our route the more energy you can harvest the more interesting things you can do so i i don't think it's unreasonable to think that civilizations will continue to harvest energy. Now, whether or not they need to build on those scales, that's interesting. That's up for grabs. Uh, I, I don't know. I just really don't know. And I think there's, you know, when it comes to this, we need to hypothesize where civilizations could go and ask ourselves what techno signatures would result from that rather than saying, well, they absolutely will go this way or they absolutely will go that way. So what about finding truly large-scale structures out there? I don't mean Dyson spheres, but I mean like the modification of a significant part of a galaxy for whatever purposes. Uh, uh, will you be? Yeah, that's right. Wow. Will you be you know, subject certain- to that? I mean, will you be conscious of that or looking for that? No, I mean, at this point, well, at some point we might be. But at this point, you know, what we're really looking for is modifications of planets. That, that's where we're going to start. Um, because, you know, a, 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 an intelligence that had that kind of capacity to rearrange, you know, to move hundred millions of stars around, wow, I mean, what, what, what can you even say about that? Yeah, th- so, I, I mean, so let's just step back for a second. I am very interested in this idea of the million-year civilization. What happens to a civilization when it is able to live for a very long time? And this would, if I could have the time myself, this is a paper that you know, I've talked with, uh, you know, doing some kind of study, initial study of this is something I'm really interested in. Because um, David Kipping, who's an astronomer at... Uh, uh, Columbia 
recently did a paper that with uh, Caleb Scharf and I, and really we just came out of discussion, David did all the work, where he looked at, he asked, what's the probability, uh, if you have a lot of different civilizations of a lot of different ages, which is the one that's most likely for you to uh, detect? And it comes out that it's the older civilizations that it's more likely that you're going to detect because they're around longer. So if on average we expect we're going to detect old civilizations, then what are old civilizations like? Uh, if you have a bunch of civilizations with a bunch of different – a bunch of ages, what is the most likely age uh, that you're going to detect? And it turns out it's the old ones. The, on average, you're going to – the first one you're going to detect is going to be an old civilization because they've been around longer. So what that means is one really wants to ask what happens to a civilization if it manages to continuously evolve for a million or a billion years. David Grinspoon talks about this a lot in his uh, book Earth and Human Hands that you know these ancient civilizations what are they like and if they're you know one can imagine the technology getting to the point where they disappear. They are. They become the laws of physics. Caleb Scharf has sort of talked a lot about this. So it's really hard to imagine these really, really long civilizations. But we have to start, right? But one of the things I really advocate a lot is, is rather than kind of one-off science fiction stories, we should at least begin to start trying to systematically understand what might happen to civilizations as they evolve for long periods of time. Because by doing that, we will also begin to understand what their techno-signatures might be. I mean, the problem right now with the field is because it's young, there's a lot of, you know, there's papers here and there. Or there's people writing blog posts about things. but So there's a lot of ideas out there, but none of them have been shaped by the scientific process in the sense of saying, okay, what are the problems with that? Uh, systematically, do we think that's likely or unlikely? And then finally, what techno-signatures may come out of that? So that's where we have to go. Uh, there was just a recent meeting a couple weeks ago uh, on Zoom uh, about techno signatures called Technoclines that uh, Jacob Hawk Misra uh, led. And this was one of the things you know we were talking about is how do we begin to systematically approach this problem? So having you know entire uh, galaxies be rearranged, Right at this point, we're not looking for that. If we stumble upon it, you know, if somebody sees that, that's going to be uh, going to be weird from an astronomical point of view, and it'll get flagged. But that's not really where we're thinking. What we're thinking is, look, we're going to be looking at planets. We're going to have lots of data about planets. What kind of data should we be looking for? What might be hidden in that data that's going to be relevant to techno signatures? Gotcha. But, but before we move on to to to, to talk about uh, planets itself again. Uh, let's spend a couple of minutes talking about uh, the megastructures because mm -hmm. what possible, I mean, I'm sure you must have had a couple of beers out in the wilderness and looked up and thought about megastructures, even if you haven't written a paper about it. What possible reason would even a, a advanced Kardashev civilization have for rearranging a galaxy? I mean, that's just, that seems nuts. Like rearranging, you know, stars like you rearrange furniture. I mean, that that seems well, beyond our I, yeah, comprehension. I, I, I agree with that. I, I can't imagine rearranging galaxies, but I can certainly imagine, you know, rearranging black holes, right? I mean, if you, if really what you're interested in is not only um, energy, but also the manipulation of space-time itself for for reasons of computing, even. Um, you could do some very powerful computing by tapping the information architecture of the event horizon now how now how uh, so can, can you explain that because that the, the, I, I, 
I I don't know how it's it, it, it gets that. it gets it gets pretty esoteric and at this point I'd have to go back and relook because I actually looked at this in some detail at some point but it's really about you know everything computing just uh, there's a thermodynamics of computing um, and it's about so you know it gets tied up with that you can use um, you can use the event you can use the information structure of event horizons or even um, the the thermodynamic properties of, of neutron stars to try and do, to actually tap it for computing. So, so there's a bunch of reasons, both energetically or informationally, that, that the place you'd really want to manipulate would be things like black holes or, or you know, very compact objects. Yeah, so it's hard for me to imagine why you'd want to rearrange stars, but I could imagine rearranging black holes. And the event uh, horizon, using- and parenthetically, the event horizon uh, definition is just a, simply the demarcation point where all matter uh, disappears into the black hole except for the hawking radiation right right that okay. comes out all right yeah so uh so go ahead. so those are the places where if you're a super powerful uh, uh um civilization that you know i mean where and where do i get this from i'm getting it from you know it's great science fiction writers have sort of they're the you know, the science fiction writers the one who've gone who those are who are the ones who have gone farther than the uh, scientists in this regard. Uh, so, um, yeah. Okay. So uh, the Breakthrough Listen project, uh, of which uh, you are not a part, noted that there could be no. inhabited environments that seem inhospitable to us, like the central engine of an active galactic nuclei or nucleus. Um, which is a, a black hole, supermassive black super, hole. A super, a super massive black hole. I mean, so... If you were talking about using the energy from an event horizon uh, near the thermal gradient energy of an event horizon, are we talking about a stellar mass black hole? Uh, intermediate? Well, it be any kind of black hole. Okay. You know? I mean, yeah, so it maybe, matter. So maybe a Kardashev II civilization might get the wherewithal to utilize a, a stellar mass black hole and then the, a, a, a Kardashev four, which is capable of rearranging galaxies, <laughs> um, uh, might have the computing power of a whole uh, supermassive black hole, which you know kind of you know gives us uh, the ideas about well, if you have that much energy and that much uh, wherewithal, uh, technological wherewithal, you could probably create create your own simulated universe, which. Uh, which well, that's where a, the computing part comes from. Yeah, exactly. Right? Right. A simulated universe, you'd need, you know, super duper powerful supercomputers. And, you know, I've read stuff about using, you know, using compact objects as to do your computing. So, so, well, no, no, so but again, so, so this so, is the, you know, the problems here is that. But let me just interrupt before you yeah. go, go on. So, so right now we're taking baby steps and looking for techno signatures. Right. Let's hope, uh, are you saying that in 25, 30 years, in a generation, we might be able to, to successfully look. I'm not saying find or characterize, but look for uh, for these type of mega engineering projects out there. I think the next 20 or 30 years are really going to be focused on looking at planets. Okay. Like I said, science is slow. You know, now what, <laughs> okay. what breaks it, so there's actually two, I'm, you know, I talked about revolutions in, in um, technosignatures or SETI. And the other revolution is machine learning, which has revolutionized classic SETI, right? Because classic SETI was like, well, let's just go out and look a lot of places and see what we find, right? 
Um, but uh, you know, that was hard when you had to actually look at the data. But with machine learning, now you can just you can start you know uh, taking huge amounts of data from all over the place. You can do automated searches and just get the machine machines to learn to look for something that looks strange, right? And so that now machine learning uh, has has re-energized or or provided a whole new opportunities for this kind of um, uh, uh, search for anomalies kinds of techno signatures. So that's going to really help. The machine learning is going to make it a lot easier. It's it's a revolution. It's a it's a, it's just cha- it changes everything. And that's how you, a, that's how you do only, that kind of SETI. It's not only changing SETI, but it's also changing um, basic uh, uh, rank and file astrophysics. Right? I mean the ana- right. analysis, right. Right. The, the computational right. systems. Okay. So what about? Uh, I mean, this is a crazy a crazy one. But uh, uh, what about seeing exhaust from an alien technologies? Uh, Starships, for instance, for instance, something. I don't think that's crazy at all. I don't. I think that's that's a very reasonable. Because here's the thing, um, you know, the we know a lot of laws of physics. I'm sure there's more to learn, but there may be some laws of physics that really we now actually know, and one of them may be the speed of light. Speed of light, the idea that speed of light is constant, that may actually be a limit. And you can imagine, well, if that is a limit, then. You know, interstellar travel may not be may be very hard to do, and it may be unless it's, unless the individual members of a civilization are very long lived, then you you're not. It's going to be hard to have interstellar civilizations because the travel time between uh, uh, stars would be hundreds or thousands of years. And so, if your if your biology doesn't allow you to live for more than um, you know a hundred or so, then you don't you're not going to have a civilization, an intact civilization. That will be interstellar. So what you could imagine, though, is that your interplanetary civilizations could certainly be quite robust. And, you know, even for us, the next thousand years of human evolution will all be about the solar system. And we, a thousand years from now or a few hundred years from now, we may have a lot of fusion drive uh, burning. You know, you might be able to have a lot of uh, signatures of fusion drives going back and forth from the inner to the outer solar system. And if you were looking uh, at Earth from a distance or looking at the solar system from a distance, you might be able to, if your telescopes were sensitive enough, you might be able to pick up all of those drives. So but, I, I think that's, but if that's, that's not if, if that's crazy a case, at all. I hear you, I, but if that's the case, how would you differentiate between some sort of artificial disturbance caused by a warp drive and some sort of natural astrophysical process that uh, maybe you're not just not familiar with? Well, I didn't say warp drive in this case, right? Because I don't even think the warp drive is necessarily a coherent idea. I mean, there is a Abercrombie drive, but it's not even clear that that's even conceivably possible. Well, I'm the, talking about just fusion drives now. Fusion right? drives, so, yeah. yeah. But fusion drives, actually, there was somebody at that same Abpsycon conference uh, who mentioned the possibility of, of uh, looking for the signatures of nuclear fusion reactors from distant spacecraft. And they said that the, they they told me for a Forbes article that they that would manifest themselves as tiny pinpricks that would have uh, strong spectroscopic signatures of hydrogen and helium plasma. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I was at that that I, this was the one in Seattle in twenty eighteen. That's right, and, that. you, and I spoke at the, I spoke at that meeting. Yeah. You were quoted in the same article. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why you know so avi Loeb is the one who says like you know if we had powerful enough telescopes yeah we might be able to see these lights flickering back and forth that would have 
you know, not only would it have hydrogen and helium, it would have the, the Doppler shift of the exhaust coming out. So, you know, if you had enough of it happening uh, and then you could study it over time, if it was repeatable, then you might very well be able to identify uh, not only that these were fusion drives, you might be able to tell something about how the fusion drives are being distributed around the, around the solar system. Are you considering spectral type when doing the, uh, the characterization? Um, the spectral type of the star? Yeah, so in other words, orange dwarfs, the K-dwarfs, are right. considered by some uh, astrobiologists to be kind of the sweet spot, the spectral sweet spot for potential for life. Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani are two K-dwarfs that are very near to our own sun, and they both are known to have planets. Um, and there are a lot of good reasons why K-dwarfs may be better than, than well, uh, M-dwarfs, you know, you, you have the uh, tidal locking problem. G-dwarfs, right. we're a G-dwarf, but um, we do not have a very, our sun, you know, basically um, has a, a an age limit of about 10, 10 billion years, whereas the K-dwarfs right. are range in age from 15 to 40 billion years. I mean, that's a, quite a significant time to develop yeah. a technology of the sort that you're advocating, or not advocating, but that you're uh, going to be looking for. Right, right. So what yeah, are your and thoughts? It's interesting. The whole lifetime thing is interesting because what's interesting about the Earth is that we maybe, if we're lucky, have the Earth has another maybe billion years of habitability before the sun warms to the point where you're just not going to be able to have life on Earth, which means that intelligence didn't evolve on Earth until kind of the last part of its habitability. So what does that tell us? Does that tell us that it's really hard to get intelligence? Or, or you know, we just happened to show up, intelligence didn't show up uh, on Earth until late. But that doesn't say anything. But that's an interesting point. That, I mean, that, that, and that is the crux of the question, isn't it? How, how long right. does it take to get intelligence? I mean, that, right. Uh, right. What, what are your own thoughts on that? Uh, well, actually, again, David Kipping, who I respect greatly just re greatly just recently did a paper on this and he found actually so that there's two time scales that earth gives us that we can that are you know that's all the data points we got so we got to extract the maximum amount of information out of them uh single cell life appeared on earth very early that's what's interesting so single cell life appears very early in the history of the earth and intelligent life doesn't appear until relatively late in the habitable history of the Earth. So David Kipping did, you know, this amazing Bayesian analysis of this, and what he and he tried to answer the question, you know, from this is, do we should we expect life to be common? Um, general, should we expect simple life to be common? Should we expect intelligent life to be common? And what he found was, from this, you were able to say, like, yes, actually, this does favor the idea of simple life being common in the universe. And it slightly favors intelligent life to not be so common. But it wasn't like by, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't overwhelming. But so the, the good news about that was simple life would certainly be common. Uh, so um, my own feeling on this is that we just don't have enough to know. Like in D David's result is the best we could possibly do. And it only slightly disfavored uh, intelligent life. So there's no way you could take his real result and say, oh, for sure, you know, intelligent life's going to be rare. So, yeah, so so I think, you know, to, to, we're it's still pretty up, much up for grabs. Okay, so um, as you know, the length of civilization is, um, is the unknown factor in Frank Drake's yes. famous equation to determine the prevalence of intelligent life in the cosmos. 
Thus, what will we learn about the longevity of alien technological civilizations in general from the search, do you think? Well, that, God, if we could actually, you know, the first thing, look, if we find any civilizations, that is going to be the most <laughs> important scientific discovery in the history of humanity. Um, and then if we have any evidence that they lasted longer than we did, that would be great news. Because what it showed is, is that you, there's the possibility of getting beyond the various existential crises crisis eye or whatever that are staring down uh we're staring down the throat of right now so you know to find any civilization that had a technology that was more advanced than ours would be a great great discovery for for us and our the ideas of the future and would you be able to differentiate the difference between uh an alien technology that you had evidence of for um in other words, would it still an extant civilization or a long dead civilization? Uh, well, that's interesting, right? The possibilities. I mean, again, the if we find, let's imagine that we found the uh, evidence for a whole moon covered, like one a planet covered in solar panels, right? So we we see a planet or a moon that has that uh, ultraviolet edge. So, wow, okay, this is really excellent evidence for a technological civilization. Now we stare at that, that system for a while. If we don't see any radio waves coming from it, if we don't see any optical signals coming from it, if we don't see any heat signatures or city lights coming from it, it, it that would be an indication that it was a dead planet. If we don't see or dead, you know, dead civilization, if we don't see anything active happening, then that would be an indication that it was a, a dead civilization. We'd have to study long and hard that system, that that that, that planetary system, uh, and see whether or not there was anything that hinted that there was still something going on there. So I think it's, you know, I think it would be possible once you made a discovery like that to watch for a while and see whether or not there was anything else going on. And um, what what would this uh, search impact? How will this search impact our understanding of? how long our present civilization might last. And um, so in other words, in a Forbes article, I quote you as saying that anthropogenic climate change is likely to be generic for any civilization in the universe. We know certainly that we're suffering from that here. And, uh, and then you quote, uh, and then I quote you as saying, we're probably not the first to navigate this challenge and climate change may leave impacts on what you can see from a distance can you can you give us a, a clue as to what impacts it might leave well one thing that we're interested in is the idea of the heating itself the um uh the the, uh, the degree of climate change that it uh, impacts or that you get is it possible you could look at a world and see more co2 in the atmosphere that you'd expect to see for that kind of world uh, you also, uh, this goes along with the industrial activity, you know, could you see hotspots from industrial activity uh, in, in the infrared? Um, so there's a, a number of different, well, one also a thing that one could also look for is uh, atmospheric disequilibrium, the degrees of atmospheric disequilibrium that would be produced by having large-scale industrial activity uh, in, in a, uh, in, on a planet. Um, so, uh, you know, there's various ways in which you would look for how the industrial activity would, the, the, the entropic 
consequences. The, 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 the generating of entropy by the industrial activity, its feedbacks on the planet in terms of taking the planet into directions that you wouldn't think the planet would get there on its own. Okay. So um, what have, have you thought about searching for alien technosignatures within our own solar system? Oh, God, yeah. No, well, I haven't. That's not my particular domain. But at this meeting I was at, there was a lot of discussion of that. Um, and, uh, you know, we recently put in a grant to NASA, a consortium of us. Uh, one big part of it was looking in the solar system. Because, you know, as someone has pointed out, Anyone looking at us from a distance, anyone looking at Earth from a distance could have seen for the last three billion years that, whoa, Earth has biosignatures. So, you know, for a while, if you were looking at us, the Earth, the solar system would be a place to send probes to because, you know, you wanted to watch. Just like if we find us a, uh, a planet that has biosignatures as strong as Earth does, when we had the capacity to send probes, we'd send probes there. So it's possible that there's stuff, you know, in the solar system that has been around for a long time, is maybe dead now, but uh, has been parked on you know, the moon. You know, so one, well, you know, people have proposed, we have enough data, with this, the, the moon has been mapped with images down to, I, I think it's like, you know, tens of meters or even less. So you could do machine learning to look at those images and see if you can identify anything that looks out of the ordinary. I mean, people have already done this and found the, the Apollo landers. So uh, there's, there's really, you know, looking in the solar system makes a lot of sense to see if, if anybody sent probes our way uh, to, and that, there's, that stuff is still there. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing because it sounds very science fiction-y, but as we, you know, as we ourselves are maturing as a species and we imagine what we would do, it becomes clear that like, oh, yeah, so somebody else, if they're like us, would, would do this. That doesn't mean they have, but you certainly have to look. If you don't look, you can't say it's not there. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the podcast, but just two or three more questions. Okay. And then we'll let you go. So in 10 to 20 years' time, if you come up empty with this techno-signature search, uh, what conclusions will you reach about the prevalence of such technology in the nearby galaxy? Well, the question, so that's a good question, but the question isn't about time. The question is about volume of parameter space that we've searched, right? So think about the ocean, right? If the, the parameter space that we have to search, and by parameter space, I mean, uh, how, if we're just doing classic SETI, how many frequencies have we listened to? How long have we listened to those, the, you know, how long did we listen for a, a signal? Um, what, uh, what places in space did we look at? Did we come back? Did we listen for an hour and then come back two days later? Uh, so these are all, so I just gave you like four examples of parameters. And, and together they make up a space of parameters that you have to search through. So uh, Jason Wright did a very interesting study. It was built on a study that Jill Tarter did where Jason looked at all of the parameter space that needs to be searched for classic SETI, and then he looked at how much we actually had searched. And it turns out if that uh, parameter space was the ocean, what we had looked for so far was a hot tub, right? <laughs> so if right? you look in a hot tub and you don't, let's say you, you take out the- uh, uh, That's you a great take analogy. Some water, you take a, a, hot tub, a hot tub's worth of, of water from the ocean and you look for dolphins. And you're like, there's no dolphins in my hot tub. Do you then say, well, that's it. There's no dolphins in the ocean, right? That would be crazy. So the question is, how much parameter space? Like, we're going to have to search probably a reasonable volume of parameter space, more than a hot tub, before we can start making statistical conclusions about 
uh, the existence of intelligent life. So again, it's not time, it's parameter space. And I think it's going to be a while before we're able to do searches on that scale before we're going to be able to even come close to saying anything definitive. So this is going to be a long, people, you know, like, again, it took 15 or whatever, you know, 2000 years to find atoms. Um, this may, I don't know if it's going to take that long. I don't think it'll take that long, right. but, uh, you know, this is not a short, this is the most important question humanity has. It's not going to get answered, uh, you know, in 10 years. But we've also been searching, you know, in classical SETI and the optical and the radio, uh, basically since, uh, arguably since 1959, 60, 60 years. Uh, are you surprised that SETI has come up empty in the classical well, again, SETI? no, but it's but for the exact reason we've looked in the hot tub. No, not at all. Even in, that's e, the classic SETI. The, e, all those cla- is that right? Okay. Yeah, people have this idea that like every night astronomers are turning their telescopes to look for signals of, but there's never been any money to do that. Like, there, you know, there was never any money to do this. So, you know, other than a few nights, you know, of a few people looking at this, and for most of SETI's lifetime, the astronomers who did it were kind of looked at as a little bit wacky, you know? So, there have been very few SETI searches. You know, if you look at all of astronomy and ask how much of SETI, how much of astronomy has, has been SETI, the answer is basically none of it. You know, of course, that little teeny tiny bit that's been done got huge press because everybody's really interested in it. But it's basically, there has been no SETI. You know, if you look at it as a fraction of all astronomy being done. And that is what is now finally beginning to change. So, yeah, nobody should be surprised that we haven't found anything because we haven't looked. you know right gotcha okay so last question so what is the biggest challenge either technical or monetary or budgetary or what is the challenge in the search for techno signatures just not just your search but any search well right it really is it's just funding you can't have a you cannot have a robust scientific endeavor unless you have a community of people including young people being trained in it uh and there has been no money for SETI this grant that came through was really one of the first grants that 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 NASA had funded particularly for what's going on um in a long time like there's just been no fun and if there's no funding then why would a graduate student ever go into it and and why, why, why would a graduate student commit uh you know, uh, a career suicide. Basically, the only people who have ever done SETI are people who already, other than a few unbelievably brave souls, are people like me, <laughs> you know, who already have tenure. So there's just, there's no community. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no infrastructure. There's none of the things that you need to do with science. And so, you know, hopefully that's now changing. But if it doesn't change, we're still going to be where we were before with just a few ragtag efforts every now and then. And your grant to the ballpark figure is what, uh, you get it was about uh i think maybe 150,000 you know just basically enough to cover which is peanuts you know, i mean that's peanuts it's peanuts oh it's below peanuts it's basically enough to cover um jacob's you know some of some of jacob's time who's going to be doing the main grants and then like a little bit like you know maybe a couple of weeks of you know of support for me and and, and i mean Jacob, that's a, uh, and, and i mean Jason. you think about it this is probably the i mean as you said it let me just kind of kind of uh, give the listener something to think about this is arguably the most important question that science could answer. And NASA has given you a grant. I'm glad they did. But it's $150,000. 
That is basically. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Exactly. That's that, really that's, amazing. That's basically yeah. the the salary of the mayor of Peoria, Illinois, or something. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. a, a mid-sized city in the Midwest. I mean, yeah. come on. I yeah. mean, you know, we. No, no, no. It's that's exactly where we're at, and so it's great that NASA is funding this. I know, of course, NASA responds to you know, like with Congress and such. And one of these, NASA got really burned in the, I think it was the eighties when NASA, you know, NASA was always very active with SETI earlier on. Um, you know, but, but but like around the eighties, it got burned by um, Congress because I forgot who the congressman was. Uh, well, he's like, a, this he, is a waste of time. Didn't want to. Yeah, I, I remember that. I didn't want to look for little green men. But right, actually, little green men. This is a waste of taxpayers' dollars. But when it was funded, like, look, we got but, too much to do. We're but when it was funded this. by SETI, it wasn't known as SETI. It was known as a high resolution microwave survey. That was a euphemism. That was that was a euphemism for SETI when yeah. Congress was funding it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Adam, do you have a way that uh, listeners can contact you on social media? Uh, well, I have a, a. I'm on Twitter, and it's uh, Adam Frank Four at Adam Frank Four. I also have a website, um, adamfrankscience.com. And so people can, you know, if they want to drop me a line through those, that would be, that's, that's a good way to contact me. Okay. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Adam Frank. Let's hope that uh, you guys hit pay dirt soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am cer- I'm not expecting it, but I am certainly hoping. Thanks for being a, a part of the podcast today. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was really, really fun. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>